0: It's almost like symbolic execution happening in his head. But then, you know, you pair him with an auditor who is from an engineering background, and because they have that perspective of having gone through the engineering process, there are certain things that they will just look for, knowing that this is how engineers have gone through it, that, that um, people with a mathematical background won't find.
1: GM GM, everyone. My name is Degach, your host, of scraping bits and today i'm with a special guest alex roan from cypherin how's it going man
0: (laughs) yeah really good thanks mate thanks for inviting me
1: yeah of course yeah i'm quite keen to get a little intro of you um, of basically who you are and what you do just to give some context and we'll we'll dive in
0: yeah sure um yeah i'm alex i am co-founder at cypherin Uh, i've been in the uh web3 space for Come up to four years now, I think. Mm. Um, was it was it Chainlink for three? Before that, very typical Web three engineer kind of origin story. It was in Web two for a while. Mm. Grew disillusioned and kind of made it, took the jump, took the leap, leap of faith to just yeah. get into
1: this, this industry. When were you already in cybersecurity in web, in web two, or did you kind of get into that in web three?
0: No, not really. So I'm very much come from an engineering perspective. So security has always been there. I think that's one of the things that we've, that, that I, I think the web three space can, uh, can learn from is how security is matured in web two. And a lot of those practices haven't really transitioned, made the jump to Web3 yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so not specifically security-oriented
1: in Web2, now. So you just kind of picked it up with Web3 in the past, I guess, year or during the whole kind of transition?
0: Well, I think working at Chainlink was a big factor in this mm-hmm. and right. seeing how much emphasis was placed on every line of code that was changed in a smart contract. Mm-hmm. Um, the the scrutiny that every change would go through the the expected process of how monitoring would work as it was live the war room games it was very much security first engineering in in a space where i don't think a lot of projects were engineering that way and mm-hmm. y- you can kind of see the results of in that you know crazy numbers are still being hacked to this day whereas chainlink and makerdao and a few of the big players, the the ones that do emphasize engineering with security in mind first and foremost, they, they don't suffer so much from those problems.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's where you met Patrick as well, the, the other co-founder at Cipher,
0: right? That's right. Yeah, we we joined roughly the same time. I think like within a month of each other yeah. when Chainlink Labs was like thirty or forty people. So it was, mm. yeah, it was it was the the early days. I, I think I joined right after. VRF V1 launched. What is that? What is VRF V1? <laughs> Via, uh, verifiable random function. So it's a way to get randomness in,
1: in smart contracts it's from the chain of nodes. Yeah. And then what kind of made you like leave and start Ciphering, basically?
0: Yeah. So when uh, when Patrick and I first met, we, we were both in DevRel initially. So I, I didn't actually join the Chainlink engineering team oh, okay. originally. It was uh, the DevRel team. So I was... I'd, I'd quit my Web2 job mm-hmm. because I was I was super into smart contracts and I, I just saved up some money and I was like, I'm just going to blog about smart contracts and see what happens. So I'll just give myself six months without a job and see where it takes me. And like two months in, Chainlink reached out and said, hey, can you, can you write our docs for us? Because we've just released this VRF, um, you wrote an article about it. And uh, we'd love it if you could spruce the docs up and and whatnot. So I came on as like a contractor, met Patrick. He'd just joined Endeavor as well. And after a while they they said, Hey, you know, we want to bring you on full-time and I'm an engineer. I didn't want to write docs forever. So, so my kind of the, the deal for me was like, I'm going to be an engineer or I'm not, I'm not going to come on Mm full-time. So eventually transitioned there. Um, But in the meantime, uh, working with Patrick found out that he just started a, a, Chainlink node operated company called Alpha Chain uh-huh. that was that was running some uh, Chainlink nodes, running some you know blockchain nodes, ETH nodes, stuff like that. And yeah, he just asked me if, if I wanted to come on and help him out and and just like be co-founder, just the two of us working working on it on the side. And eventually that grew over the years while we were at Chainlink to the point where it was like yeah. working two full-time jobs. It just got too much, so we we hired in for that. And got some uh, DevOps engineers, like cloud engineers, stuff like that. Yeah. To the point where that that ran itself, and we stayed close, even though I was in engineering, who's in DevRoll. Mm-hmm. We stayed pretty close, like values aligned. And as the company grew, I think we both had itches that we wanted to scratch. Yeah, the typical growing pains that you see when you go from a startup to to a big organization, which is what Chainlink Labs is now, is that roles aren't as flexible. You don't have as much ownership over such a a wide range of things. And the type of people that you need in a startup, is very different to what you need when you're a big organization where roles are super well-defined and the scope of what you do is restricted. And I think we felt we could make more impact than we were making, given that mm-hmm. the teams had grown and the roles that we had had restricted slightly. And eventually that it's just got too much and we, we founded Cypherin. And and mm-hmm. yeah, that was uh, six months ago now.
1: Yeah, and what was kind of like the process of starting this um, and then getting it off the ground and eventually getting to where you are now? There must've been a lot of difficulties and hit stops you had to make. Yeah, so basically what was the, the starting process like? So the, the dynamic that Patrick and I have is he
0: is a hundred miles an hour. Whereas I will, my instinct is always to slow down and think about things mm-hmm. and that yin and yang, the offset of the two, two sides of the same coin has actually worked really well for us because mm-hmm. I think without him, I probably wouldn't have been able to do this because he's like, no, ship it, go and ship it <laughs> ship now yeah, just ship, just ship. Whereas I'm like, whoa, you know, that security mindset is let's think about this a little bit. Yeah. Um, but when like working together, that that dynamic has worked really well. So I've got to give credit to, to Patrick there of, of just pulling the trigger and saying, no, we're doing this. The the, the, the first thing we had to do was, was bring in some security experts. Yeah. Um, so we hired a guy called Geo.
1: How did you hire? Did you have any money prior or did you do a raise? Right, right. That's, that's a good question.
0: Yeah, so... Um, we, we had investors from, uh, alpha chain. Oh, so, um, yeah. Yeah. we, we had been, and they acted as like a kind of advisors for a long time and we've been going back and forth, coming up with these ideas. So as that, you know, itch grew, grew more and more, we wanted to scratch. They, they were there to basically say, Hey, when you want to pull the trigger on this, we're with you. And as soon as we had a strategy to, to go to market, you know, they were, they were fully in. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so, um, So yeah, that's, that's the backing that we had
1: when we did this. Yeah. So basically just had like an idea of how you're going to basically build it all from scratch, how you're going to do audits, how you're going to build a clientele, retain that clientele and just expand from there. And then they're like, okay, sounds good. Here you go, money. (laughs) Yeah,
0: essentially that's, that's how it went. Um, I think so, so from the engineering perspective in Chainlink, access to top tier auditors is very difficult to come by. Most of the big firms, like Chainlink Labs, they they have them booked out on retainer for most of the year. So if you want to actually get a slot with one of these big, big companies, um, big auditors, mm-hmm. as a small project, it's very difficult. You have to you have to kind of pay out. So and we also conversely saw a lot of shit, frankly. Uh, you know, rubber stamps. And so so we saw somewhere that we could make an immediate impact in that area with the values that we had and still have. And it was just coming up with a more long-term long term view then because yeah. we were pretty confident that we could break in short-term.
1: You took a different approach to starting a security firm. I think most of them now basically come from a public contest kind of environment, score top, top on the leaderboards and then build a clientele from that. So maybe they scored number one on a specific protocol and then that protocol reaches out to them to basically put them on retainer and then through that, they get referrals and then they kind of just build a firm from that. Uh, did you, you guys didn't really do that though. You just kind of like built it from scratch and then got into these public contests, right?
0: Yeah, we, we did, but we did hire immediately from the Code Arena leaderboard. Oh, okay. uh, that was our first um, big hire was Hans, who was at the time the best, the best auditor, best performing auditor on Code Arena over the past like year or something. So he's, he's since come on as co-founder as well. So that was our big hire. But but you are right. We we didn't. That's not how we initially got our business. I think we were a bit lucky, and that Patrick and I knew a lot of folks in the industry anyway that we had connections with, who trusted us, who who have worked with with us before, especially. So they were willing to give us uh, give us a go yeah. initially. But but from there, it's it's been both private audits and participating as a team on. Competitive audits like
1: Code Arena as well. From that first hire, how did you kind of expand from that? Uh, I guess you had like a lot of money left over or, or how did you kind of go about that?
0: Yeah. So the, the first thing was to get a an audit team working on audits. So we, we never wanted to work on audits in... Uh, like as individuals, mm-hmm. um, we we always feel, like I said at the beginning, we, we don't want to take shortcuts. We want to make sure we cover as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and every auditor is slightly different. And, you know, we're finding a lot of the, the auditors on Coder for example, they don't actually have engineering experience. They they come at it from a mathematical perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- that perspective brings certain things, like Hans thinks, the way he thinks about things is is crazy. Like the way he's described it to me is, it's almost like symbolic execution happening in his head. Yeah. But then, you know, you pair him with an auditor who is from an engineering background, and because they have that perspective of having gone through the engineering process, there are certain things that they they will just look for, knowing that this is how engineers have gone through it, that that mm-hmm. um, people with a mathematical background won't find. So, um, the first step for us was to to set up the a pair of auditors and, and have one team up and running getting the processes down like how you write reports what does that look like how do you track issues together how do you divide the code base and, and stuff like that and once that kind of got rolling it was just like hey let's um let's hire some more people and get another team working in parallel um, and try and scale it up and yeah we, we got to the point where where that was that was all it was re- that was required to to stop having to dip into the pool of money that we started with
1: yeah yeah so basically started just doing audits with yourself, Patrick, and Hans initially. And uh, Gio, who
0: was our first
1: first hire out of the chaining community. So you had four initially. And then once you had these people, um, you basically started auditing? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, Hans was um, experienced anyway, and he was, he was a judge at Code Arena as well. So he kind of had the... the the gravitas to say, hey, actually, no, this is this is a high or this is a medium. Um, whereas we were kind of fumbling around knowing what issues were, just not how to categorize them. Yeah, and- yeah.
1: That's a whole different skill itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 definitely bringing on someone that's a judge in a public contest environment is a terrific sort of hire because they have both the knowledge of how to write reports, which is basically one half of the whole process. And then also basically identifying what vulnerabilities are and the severities. If you have no experience in basically the severity identification, then you might be giving like false results or making it seem like it's more extreme than it's not or less extreme than what it actually is. From there, what was your first audit like when you, you got your first client? And how did you get your first client?
0: Yeah, our first client came from knowing them, essentially. Really? It was uh, Linkpool, another... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, close friends of Patrick and I who were coming out with some on-chain products. Mm-hmm. And liquid liquid Link Staking Derivatives, I believe, was the first one. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, that, that went quite well. I think, like I said, I think we we're a bit rusty with what was the, ca- the severity categories. But... Yeah. Yeah, it went pretty well. We we had a couple of connections from for, for the next few audits as well that that um, reached out to us. From there, I think the reputation just 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 built and the the inbound grows from that.
1: Yeah, and how did you really price the the incoming quotes as well? Yeah, again, from
0: initially it was kind of fumbling in the dark. We we knew what the the price range was for individual auditors. So, so that's quite a big scene at the moment now is, you know, individual private audits. Um, you see a lot of them on Twitter. Like you said, they, they come out of the Code Arena contest. Yeah. And we kind of knew what that range was. Um, we also knew, uh, from my own experience working with some of the big players at, at Chainlink Labs, what the frankly, extortion of prices were some of those, mm-hmm. and, and again, we, we didn't want to price out smaller projects. So, yeah. so initially it was, it was start low and, and kind of find that equilibrium as you go.
1: Let's say I come with a, with a big reaper and I have like basically no budget. <clears throat> what would be kind of like your minimum or what determines your minimum as well? And what would determine basically, yeah, basically the price range for, for the project.
0: I think the the important thing for me is, as I'm coordinating the the internal teams now, is to understand what our guys would feel comfortable with after a certain amount of time. So, so we use a tool developed by um, Consensus Diligence with a, with quotes mm-hmm. that. Um, spits out a complexity number, which is like this arbitrary number depending on interactions between contracts um, and different complexity metrics, and the number of lines of code. So that's like a baseline numbers that you can refer to. And judging on how we've gone, how we've done in previous audits, how how long would it take for my guys to be confident that they've covered as many bases as they could? Would it take like how what what time? So. That, that's the main thing. It's like complexity score, number of lines of code. Let's say I think that it's going to be three weeks my guys would be comfortable with. Um, there's other things to consider as well. So if you come cool. to me and say, okay, I want an audit on this PR, which is adding a brand new peripheral peripheral contracts with a bunch of new features to a set of core contracts that already exists. Mm-hmm. I just want the PR audited. That's what's in scope. Well, that's kind of difficult because you're going to expect just the complexity of that to be audited. And it might be like 500 lines of code. And you think, well, it's not going to take more than a week. But from our perspective, to really understand the repercussions of the interactions between just that PR and the rest of the system that you have here, we're going to need to build context mm-hmm. and to feel comfortable about you know, kind of covering as much as we can, we, yeah. we have to spend time on the stuff that's out of scope as well. So it's this very like fuzzy, fuzzy thing. But from my perspective, I'm very much um, duration. So right. out of this process of going through the complexity and the lines of code, and and um, sometimes I'll up some of the guys who are doing doing the audits as we speak, and just get, get their opinion and how they feel about it. Um, but I'll come out with a duration, So it'll be like three weeks or four weeks. I think the shortest we'll go is probably one week mm-hmm. purely because of how long it takes to, to write a report mm-hmm. and the coordination between the pair of auditors and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I'll come up with a duration. I'll give it back to Patrick and the, the sales team and then they handle the salesy stuff. Um, so I am not a salesman by any stretch of the okay. kind of imagination.
1: So you're basically pairing up your, your internal auditors, um, a maximum two, minimum two. So always just a pair of auditors?
0: Not not always a pair. So there'll always be two leads. Um, okay. For larger larger uh, audits, we we might have some assisting auditors come in as well. I've, I've assisted on some. So for a Beanstalk audit we did a few months ago, Hans and Geo were the leads. I was uh, on assist. And they were very much focused on like manual review. I came in. Um, having previously worked with invariant tests, which yeah. we can go into if you want, I just kind of started writing invariants for this very math-heavy protocol. And within like two or three days, the invariants brought up something that manual review just just wouldn't have found. So so yeah, that, that as an assist was uh, was helpful to the leads because then that gave them a rabbit hole to go down.
1: Um, I think invariant testing is an essential that everybody should have in their, in their code base because it's basically saying what the business logic should do, which is unique to every, uh, every contract and context. So if, if you basically pair up invariant testing, this is what it shouldn't do, right? Or what should should uphold. Um, and when you compare that, when you use that with fuzzing simultaneously, you can actually discover basically, I think it was 60 or 70% of bugs in a code base. And this kind of research was done by TrailerBits in one of their papers. It's around 60% or higher. Um, which is quite astounding. So, I wonder if you charge for basically creating unit tests and then uh, for them if they haven't done it already.
0: I, I completely agree with everything you just said. I think the invariant testing is a practice that should be part of every smart contract engineer's toolbox. I think get used to them because you can find bugs before it even goes to audit with with this tool set. It is such a powerful way to simulate a prod environment and and trying to break things that should never break. So yeah, Mm -hmm. completely agree. We we did think about, and we still are thinking about um, kind of like invariance as a service, but... Up until now it's difficult because we, we've um we went through a period of, of trying to implement them with every audit that came in the door. So with that the Beanstalk one was the start of this and they, they worked great. And we we tried to apply for every single one and it turned out that that they are a great tool, but probably sometimes it can be trying to hammer a screw. You know, if you've got a nail, it's, it's the right tool for it. But if you've got a screw, it's probably not. Because some, some protocols just aren't as stateful. They aren't as math heavy. They aren't, you know, you're not going to get precision errors. You're not going to get crazy rounding stuff, which is where they're, they're best suited, you know, when there's like a very specific conditional that you can make on some
1: numbers or, or something.
0: So, yeah, it's quite nuanced when you can and can't use them. But I, I think for the most part, you should default to at least trying.
1: For sure. Yeah. Uh, you can find a lot basically for unit tests, but that's probably the most tedious part of any development, um, cycle. And a lot of people don't want to do it. So I wonder, do you ever come across a project with no unit tests? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um,
0: and how do yeah, go about I, I think, how do we go about it? I think for, for the values that we have, we, we are opinionated about what we work on that there, there's the, you have to draw a line somewhere. I think when it when it comes to to me to do this, you know, duration quote, um, there are flags that you look for. I think not having unit tests. So, for example, if it's just a repo with some contracts in it and a README with two sentences, honestly, um, that's not ready for audit. If you disagree as a, as a potential client, you need to give me more context. I I, I can't I can't give this to my guys. I, I need to when when they start working on something, I. I need to give an overview before I set up a call between the two teams because I, I need to understand it. I need to just give a brief... They need to have an understanding of what they're walking into. If you've got no no README, no unit tests that I can go in, no integration tests, you know, just contracts interacting with each other, mm-hmm. I, I can't work with that. I, I wouldn't be providing a good enough service that lives up to our standards yeah. without that context from the get-go. Um and and that's kind of the answer that we give to potential clients. So we, we did start off with a separate product called uh code review. That was almost like a precursor to audits. We we're not so active on that anymore. I think just just having the that feedback is, is enough. Mm-hmm. And we don't you know it's it's free as well. But yeah, that's kind of how we deal with it.
1: Yeah, it makes sense because if they were giving you a code base Without any tests, expecting you to just order it, so they, you know, they don't spend as much time on testing. Basically, they expect the orders to do it. <laughs> then it wouldn't make sense for you to deny because then you're not giving context of what can you basically look at for the test and are the basic stuff working. You're kind of doing the dirty work for them, and it's going to be much a much longer duration because you have to learn what they want out of it, what is meant to pass and what's not meant to pass. <laughs> Um, basically what their intentions are. And I guess they need documentation as well, like inline comments or, you know, read me documentation at least. Otherwise you don't have anything, any context to what's meant to be working and what's meant, not meant to be working. Um, Yeah. and, And from their perspective, um, I, I think I, I would say
0: look, you're wasting your money on an audit at this stage. I think there are so many steps you could do before this that would, that could catch a lot of this low hanging fruit already before you get to audit. So the security experts can go deep because otherwise we're just going to go very shallow. We're going to spend our time catching all these low hanging fruits and, and just not have the time to go deeper and, and kind of imagine the code after you've fixed these low hanging fruits, you know, that that's yeah. when we need to go in. Once you've caught the low hanging fruit, that's when we come in and we get to go deep. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the, there are, there are fewer changes then, um, but they're
1: more, more meaningful changes. And yeah. It's basically like a quick scan. Um, like, okay, all these are covered. They're no longer in scope. Let's go. further.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, it's basic
1: stuff. Like, slither will catch re-entrancy stuff
0: you know you can run that in minutes
1: it's definitely an essential i wonder if you would charge basically that as a service as a side thing like unit testing as a service or in case people don't want to write tests (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah i think if people don't want to write tests don't be an engineer
1: Hmm. yeah for sure but i guess they might approach a security firm to do it for them instead if that was an option but just food for thought of course
0: Um, are you uh are you are you asking for this service personally
1: (laughs) um uh, no (laughs) 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 i mean just depends what language and whether it's like an open source project of course but i would love to get someone else to write half tests for me
0: yeah yeah i'm I'm sure i saw a tweet of yours recently that was something like my favorite thing not to do is write half tests or
1: something yeah uh that's like (laughs) <laughs> I honestly think that, that that constitutes like 90% of the time writing uh, a contracts because the debugging is just horrible. Uh, I don't think there's any really good mm. things from, apart from, I guess, Foundry Debugger and looking at the return, <laughs> whether it failed or not. If you get like an extra line in the failure, if it's just the same thing as what you put it in. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, one, once you did. All these audits, you kind of say self-sustained, didn't you? Uh, And then you no longer needed like the investor money. So, what what did you kind of do with the investor money after that? It's just kind of sitting there.
0: Yeah, rainy day fund at the moment. Um, We, I mean, the the long term goal is not just private audits. That doesn't scale very well. You know, you just need bodies in the door, expert bodies in the door to do that. So, so the long term goal is very much tooling and platforms and, and anything really that can help us scale. I think education is a huge part of it as well. And, and Patrick is already a beast in that, in, in the space, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of education. So we will definitely be um, be hooking into that. And, and all the things we just talked about, like um, invariant tests should be part of everybody's toolbox. Let's, let's educate engineers so that Web3 security um, does level up with things like that, you know, that, that, that's how we do it. We, we educate as well as, uh, provide a security, um, expert service.
1: Mm-hmm. And your, your company goal must be aligned with that as well. Cause you're making basically free content to put yourself out of a job technically. But having said that you're still doing it anyway. So what's, what's kind of like the mission and values of, of from Yeah,
0: this is quite a lofty one because, I mean, in 2023, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to be in crypto. Like, it, that hurts to say because yeah. I've spent four years here. But <laughs> it's, it's hard not to hesitate when someone in your, you know, everyday life asks you about it, knowing that all that they've seen is massive blow-ups and scams and traders like that's it's hard not to hesitate so you know we, we love to go down rabbit holes and there's so many things that within the space are fascinating but to the outside world it's just not a legitimate yeah space you know it's the, the legitimacy is just not
1: there yeah it's just fraud and ponziers.
0: yeah and there's a couple of in my mind, there's a few areas that are kind of the main culprits towards that. There's, there's obviously the scammers. Like 2022 was horrific for scams. The blow-ups were just insane. And I, I think the way that, that that the remedy to that is legislation, to be honest. I think the room that that those people had to maneuver for these scams is only because the, the environment allowed them to. And I, I actually, I'm, I'm pretty um, optimistic about the legislation. I think the European parliament is discussing Mika and the UK just passed a stablecoin bill, for example. I think that that's fine. So scammers is one area that I think we're gradually progressing our way out of just from slow legislation and how it should be. I think we, we have a bit of a communications issue. I think we love to be nerds night. Everyone in this space that I know of, by the way, the most technically gifted and capable people that I've ever worked with are in this space. But Communicating the concepts that we grapple with day to day to normies in normie speak, yeah, we we all find it very difficult. Even to this day, like it's it's tough. I think as we get more um, non-technical people in the space, mm-hmm. I think that's changing. You know, we we have resources like MetaMask Learn, which is a really good intro for people who aren't like Web three native. Um, so again, I think that, that area, that's another one that, that we're making progress. Mm-hmm. I think the UX is another one, you know, loads of, uh, loads of progress we made here, like recently with, uh, four, 3, three, seven, even like Solana stuff, you know, that, that's kind of pushing the mold a little bit. And the cost is another one and all these things like loads of brain is going towards. So like yeah. scalability and UX, we've got loads and loads of brain power, rightly so, um, Working towards these things, but but in my head, like each one of those things, as we progress, it's like you increment legitimacy a little bit, like legitimacy plus plus, you know. No. UI gets uh, better, and it's it's as easy as logging to Facebook or your phone or something, mm-hmm. like legitimacy plus plus. You know, it's more scalable, it's cheaper, legitimacy plus plus. But in my opinion, that doesn't matter if there's like a 6% chance that all your money is going to get hacked. Like that is not acceptable risk for anyone. <laughs> um, and like all these, you know, increments of logis- legitimacy, numbers like that, where there's hundreds of millions that have been hacked in 2022 from smart contracts. Um, that's not a decrement, you know, that's not legitimacy, legitimacy, minus, minus mm. that's legitimacy equals zero. That, that just undoes, all of the brain power, all of the work that goes into UX and cost. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ultimately, the <laughs> the goal for Cypherin is to scale up Web3. Mm-hmm. And the most important part of that, it, for us, is security. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's talked about enough. I, I think, that, like I said, there's loads of brain power going towards the other stuff. Yeah, uh, and part of the reason is it's just not sexy. Like, you know, yeah. UX is is sexy. Scalability is sexy. Vitalik's talking about it, and um, it's it's... It's cool to be nerd sniped. Like, it's fun. And security, it ain't fun. You know, it's time-consuming. It's not even foolproof, but it's required. Like, we have
1: to have it. It's the thing that's basically giving blockchain a bad name. Um, Which is where all the scams and all the... I mean, I guess not scam... Oh, I guess you could constitute scams in that kind of, like, field as well. Because... If you had basically public public auditing goods that were easy to use um, and basically use on anything, then you would identify these more often than not. I guess some of them are just marketing schemes and people fall for them and just get wrecked. But then that's not really code. That's more of just, okay, that's, I guess it is code to some degree, but maybe it's just they they all minted all the tokens and dumped them all the next day or something like that. But I guess if, it, if data was more accessible and you could see kind of statistics more easier, then you would kind of avoid this and realize, oh, this is probably not safe. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Think, and this is why hard. education
0: is part of how we're going about things of them. I think I cut out slightly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is why, um, education is, is part of, you know, it's very much in our, uh, in our focus as well. Educating people as to, to what is legitimate and what is not, that that is the roadmap.
1: And how, how do you basically educate your clients, um, on how to be better through the reports?
0: Yeah, good question. So, I mean, first and foremost, communication between us and, and clients is priority number one. I think, you gain so much alpha in the first couple of days of an audit. If you're just well, meet, meet with the team on Zoom or, or Google Meet or whatever, constantly in in that chat, just like asking questions. And what was, what was the question again?
1: Um, how do you basically educate your clients on your right, right. reports?
0: Yeah. So so first and foremost, that comes enables you to kind of like spitball with the with the with the client and mm-hmm. you get a sense as to their thinking, how they thought about things, and you can maybe even throw ideas back at them. So, so that's number one. Um, I think number two is throughout the, the audit, again, comms essential. So mm-hmm. giving them a heads up if you found a bug and giving them a chance to respond and whatnot and give them techniques as to how to avoid this in the future. Mm-hmm. But we, we've seen with the, uh, as I mentioned, the invariant tests, so we've actually um, contributed PRs to a lot of the projects that we've that we've worked with because of the invariant suites that that we've that we've written for them um, that are now part of their code base. So I think the you know we get we are fortunate, and then we get to spend our time down these rabbit holes of all these new tools and stuff. Um, and it's our responsibility if we know how to use these and we know where they're useful, just hand them over. Like I, I know we spoke about maybe monetizing test as a service or whatnot. But I think yeah. knowledge is is more important. I, I think, you know, we all work in open source repos. We all love the idea of of collaborating on, on public goods infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think knowledge is part of that. Yeah. Again, it goes towards our mission of, of scaling Web3. So passing that knowledge on for free.
1: And, and how, how are you conveying to the clients in a simple way that kind of gets them to understand? Because I, I assume majority of clients wouldn't actually be devs but would be non-technical, I, I assume like CEOs that are kind of hiring you or founders that aren't technical.
0: So the clients we've
1: had that have all been very technical.
0: We have varying degrees, you know, they're, they're, there's always an engineer as a point of contact, for example, but mm-hmm. the, the level of experience of that engineer or engineers, it varies. You know, also the code base could be a, an old code base or a fork of an old code base. So they're only used to using Truffle or something, you know, and, and kind of educating them on the latest tools. So Foundry is, you know, rip Jesus, get get involved. So yeah, it, there usually is a, an engineer that we, that we have a point of contact and and, okay. and we do our best to um, to help them
1: scale up. I was talking to Techno from from TrailerBits and they usually get clients from... Mostly like non-technical, so it's interesting to see the changes in dynamic of like scale. And I assume it'll be you'll you'll start changing once you get these non-technical people that don't really know much about basically code, and you'll have to convey, okay, what's the severity? How is this done? How can you improve? And then if you can get them to understand, then it's much much better overall, I think. Um, But how do you basically market yourself? with private audits then do you yeah how does that work is it mostly just referrals at that point
0: yes yeah, it's, it's mostly referrals I think interesting connection between scale and and who the, the point of contact in because I, I don't think we've really experienced non-technical people but I'm also I think trailer bits was around before crypto is even a thing yeah so yeah, well, so I really think wrong. they come from yeah so so they come from a space where they're, they're auditing uh web 2 code. As well so maybe that changes things slightly and i think the audience that knows who Cypherin is right now is very much crypto engineer audience anyone who's watched patrick's videos essentially
1: yeah the, the target demographic is a bit different but i think as you start to scale and people start to know about you you'll have a wide variety of uh inquiries of all, all different skill sets
0: yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the things that's definitely on our radar as well is as um, expanding outside of just EVM stuff, which is where we are right now. One of my areas of research at the moment that I always get nerd sniped is, is ZK stuff. So I, I personally think we'll see a lot of projects come to fruition over the next six to 12 months that are ZK projects. And I, I would like us to be in a position where we can... Help them with their security needs at that time. Um, so that's yeah. something we're looking into at the moment.
1: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to deal with a post deployment auditing on on ZK as well. I think because now you have basically zero knowledge hacks.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: So that will be yeah yeah. So the the
0: surface area is not just what you see on chain anymore. Yeah, that's that's different.
1: Yeah, so I'm pretty keen to see how that plays out. Not that I'm uh, going to hack anyone, one, but just to see how it all plays out. But I do think another thing in the terms of auditing is pre-deployment and post-deployment. We see mm-hmm. an over saturation of pre-deployment, but we never see post-deployment of just white-hat teams, basically. Um, so I wonder if that's any direction you're taking or have considered.
0: Yeah, for sure. We... Um- We've actually been been running an experiment internally. Um, so what we've what we've always tried to do is keep at least twenty percent of our security researchers' time for research. So um, whether that's like three weeks on, one week off, or six weeks on, two weeks off. Um, so recently, we we kind of had the idea of maybe we just intermingle that with um, kind of everyday everyday work, whether it's just like a day a week or a couple of hours in the morning. Or whatever, um, and to whatever research projects you you want to work on. And one of the most popular things that the guys want to work on is is an immunify bug bounty. So like, pick an immunify bug bounty for a project that kind of aligns with what with our values. So you know something that is like an on chain primitive, not like just a fork of something, something that's going to level up Web three. So we're talking like the ENSs of the world, projects like that, Um, and just spend that twenty percent time working on that. I think I personally would like to see us spend a little bit more time on those Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, because I agree agree with you. I think a lot of emphasis is placed on pre-deployment where the Venn diagram of bugs does overlap with what you find once it's been deployed, but not perfectly Mm -hmm. because of composability. Um, I think we spoke about this before on a private call, but yeah, there's there's a bunch of in my head there's there's a huge Venn diagram of like this is what you can find with private audits, this is what you get with competitive audits, this is what you get with like white hat, and and the trick is to cover as much of that as possible. So like cover all the bases, just just cover as much of that surface area as you can.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but again, you can never cover it all.
1: Yeah, uh, it's just not possible. You basically got to choose. What you're best at and go for that. Because um, post-deployment you're also competing against basically everyone else and especially the black hats that are staring at code for months waiting for the opportunity um, to arise. So it's very competitive in that sense. They've got basically a time scale of years or months whereas an order has weeks or maybe Couple of months of reiterations or refactoring.
0: Yeah, and there's only so much you can cover in terms of what the composability risks are before you deploy. There's only so much that you can, you know, physically get through, mentally get through. I think that's where tools like invariant tests really help because they can simulate like chaos in a production environment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, obviously, not perfect, but you can cover a lot of bases with that. Whereas, you know, when you go, exactly like what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, when as soon as you go. To prod and you're on chain, that is an unlimited time period for for people to to try and break stuff.
1: Yeah, and I wonder how you guys kind of approach building the initial context for a repo when you don't have a context, i.e. like unit tests. So if it's not initialized, right, because it's not deployed, how do you kind of go go with that? Or is it more of like static analysis and just reading, okay, this connects to this on this contract? Is there anything in this external contract that can alter this in any way? Um, yeah. So you mean if uh, if we
0: get a a client come in with very little coverage and, and not much
1: yeah, context uh, around that? Even even now that you started kind of public contests as well, how do you go about basically building the initial deployment to to run stuff on? Like a proof of concept, for example.
0: Oh, oh, oh. so uh, proof of concept in terms of like an immunify bug hunt or something on chain.
1: Yeah. Or even if you find basically a vulnerability that you suspect is a vulnerability, but you need to mm. test it out to make sure it is actually a vulnerability. <laughs> so you need to build the context prior and then build an attack contract for that. So how do you basically build the context for the attack contract?
0: Yeah, so for, for stuff that's on-chain with Immunify, um, we can just fork it with, with Foundry and, and do funky stuff. With with private audits, that is a tough challenge. So we we tend to try to write all POCs in Foundry. So if we have a, an issue, um, the we will attempt to write a coded proof of concept to, to why this is an issue. Um, that doesn't always work, especially with nuanced issues that are maybe a little bit opinionated. So sometimes it, it does fall back to being a an explained POC about how an attacker might go about something. But we will default to like a foundry unit test that proves that we can break something that shouldn't break.
1: I think having a proof of concept no matter the state where someone can actually execute it would be even in the next step further. Because if you could even do basically, I guess, a mock Context of let's say okay, let's say a vulnerability comes up on block one thousand, but the current block is like a hundred or something. I guess you could like do a mock of that and show a potential, mm. or but I guess it's kind of the same. But it gives that extra clarity, which might be useful.
0: Yeah, well, well, you, you could do that with um, you could find that with uh, Foundry invariants. You know, you could make make some actions that just like warp time or roll a block number and just have that as one of the fuzz actions. Um, And if that does break one of the invariants, then yeah, you can can find that.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I wonder if it's worth building any uh, internal fuzzers as well um, for this kind of stuff, or would that be too time-consuming? Yeah, that's the biggest
0: issue with fuzzing and invariant tests is that if you're doing a two-week audit, it's going to be a bit of a scrape to build the... Yeah, build the context of, of all the, the contracts in that test environment as if they were in production is the is the first step. You know, that setup, basically. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's probably the most time consuming thing. And the, the easiest thing, frankly, is writing the invariance. Like what should and shouldn't break. The the hardest thing is yeah, the setup and then defining the actions so that they don't just start reverting all over the place. So like yeah. if the contract that you're targeting has a bunch of different states. That eat and each state allows a certain number of actions. Mm-hmm. If you just list all those actions, and you know it's in a certain state, a lot of those are just going to revert. So you're you're not allowing your invariants to go as deep into that simulation as they can.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's that's the other thing is is writing efficient actions so that um, you can get the most out of it. The invariants the easiest bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's always that initial context set up that's the hardest. Uh-huh. I wonder if there's any way to automate that actually. It'll probably be extremely hard. <laughs> if there's any way to automate it. So we, we have found
0: some projects that we will just piggyback off of Foundry unit test setup that they have elsewhere in the repo. So that's been the most helpful because that's just, you know, enabled us to start from there. We can get those contracts straight away, automate it.
1: Mm. Yeah, in terms of just like from scratch, can you bring, I guess, a, st- a setup. setup? from nothing. like mm. Someone's deployed, people have already kind of like, quote-unquote, you know, interact with it, and mm. you have like an initial state to play around with. And, but I guess there's also vulnerabilities in different stages of this as well. There's vulnerabilities on the initial deployment stage where someone can like front-run actions or ownership, whatever, or even just manipulate pools. If something's dictated by, let's say, an Oracle manipulation, then your AMM that just deployed or... Um, I guess like a pool that just deployed, that's something else depends on. You can obviously manipulate that in any way. Um, but then you also have stuff that's already existing for some time and has established itself. Then you have more funds at risk and then you have a, a new attack surface for that or a new attack environment rather. Um, but I would like to touch on oracle manipulation since you are at Chainlink. What are what are some common common like pitfalls, and what do, what do you see as the most common way for oracle manipulation to kind of come about? I think this is this is a a deep subject. Yes,
0: um, should have started with this. <laughs> <laughs> In my opinion, and this is a, a very opinionated opinion. Yeah, I have not seen an a solely on chain oracle system that I would personally trust okay i would I would be willing to put my life savings in mm-hmm. that being said, do not get me wrong um, there are pros and cons. To both on-chain stuff and you know Chainlink solutions and whatever other scale of oracle from decentralized to centralized, whatever you want to talk about. I think in terms of reliability, right now, I think the track record speaks for itself. I, I think you know it's Chainlink. I,
1: I don't really think there's any any dispute there.
0: Where where to go next?
1: I, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. What what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think anything completely on-chain is just waiting to be manipulated. Completely on-chain. I think Oracle manipulations are kind of quite advanced and you've got to kind of think of multiple, it's kind of a multi-strategy hack. So basically how they like go is someone flash loans into basically a pool, manipulates the pool, and then they interact with something that depends on the pool. So it's quite complex compared to just, you know, okay, there's an open data validation's not there or okay, you just use an external function from a different contract it's, it's more of like an external use going into another external to <laughs> alter the original contract state so which is another layer of complexity
0: I, I think there's a wider question as to whether an on-chain oracle's value is actually the value you are in uh, is actually the value that you want yeah Because is it representative of the actual price of this thing that you want? Or is it this constrained pool of liquidity that is some percentage of the total liquidity that's probably tiny given the off-chain stuff as well? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that value actually the value you want? And I think until until all value is on-chain and there's some way of pooling it into a liquidity pool that gives you one result, I'm not convinced that it is.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite an interesting kind of field. And I think that's probably the most, that's probably like the hardest thing to automate if you were going to automate this stuff, which I'm quite interested in actually. But yeah, I also wanted to touch on kind of like how do you manage multiple hats while building Cypherin? Kind of a switch of topic, but it's it's quite an interesting one and an essential one for building a startup. You've got to basically manage a team and also if you're a technical founder, build the tools or whatever. Um, yeah. So, how did you go about basically managing everything and juggling multiple responsibilities at the same time?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. And it, it, to be
1: honest with you, it's it's probably
0: the thing that I have grappled with the most in the last six months. We Patrick and I have our own, you know, responsibilities within within the company. Like I'm very much building out this team. Having been in engineering teams and led engineering projects before, uh, I'm. You know, I'm comfortable with like building that team, and um, but it gets to a certain stage where you aren't as much of an individual contributor, and yeah. your role is no longer it's being able to spend two days in VS Code or whatever, you know, yeah. hacking away, and it becomes more about enabling others to do that. Mm. You know, it's like it's, it's scaling. That's what it is. It's scaling to get to somewhere quicker and better and faster by enabling. The guys who you're hiring the guys and girls that you're hiring to do the things that you wish you could do because that's where you get your dopamine but they're getting it quicker so you know they, they, you have to always find time to do those individual contributor things but I, a lot of my role at the moment is vision hiring providing guidance as well you know having yeah. a bit more experience than a lot of the guys that, that we have at the moment of you know how to how to work in teams how to keep your eye on the ball you know ex- execution is everything yeah um so just just Enabling people and trying to teach, try, trying to teach the lessons that you've learned previously. It's it's a very different mind switch from being an engineer, basically, and, it, and it's constantly changing. So um, I think we will eventually, I'll eventually come out of that role as as uh, audit team manager, and we're hiring if anyone's interested. <laughs> and yeah, focus on other stuff. Like I said, I want to go down a zk rabbit hole. I want to I want to open up a zk wing of of Cypher and if we can.
1: For sure, yeah. I think that would definitely be interesting in the future and a lot of projects are working on ZK now. Yeah. So how did you basically hire in terms of finding people that align with your values and incentivizing them so they're kind of thinking the same way as, you know, the founders? Because the founders have a different perspective. It's their babies, but they want to bring a babysitter to come help with the baby. (laughs) <laughs> that's I don't know if that's a good analogy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, that's such a good question. We basically give them the pitch within the first or second interview. They they'll get the pitch from myself or Patrick, and and we'll kind of gauge the response. The h- hiring is the thing that I am most scared about. To be honest, mm. I think I've I've seen I've been in places where you know hiring has been phenomenal. Um, and it's just exploded. Chainlink was the perfect place, like to see that the the hiring in the early days was phenomenal, mm-hmm. um, and it exploded. I've also been in places where one bad hire has been like a like a, a cancer that spreads throughout the whole the whole business, um, and it and it crumbles. My experience with with hiring is that you know I've, I've hired individual contributors my entire career basically. Um, so I, I you know you can you can. Come to terms with uh, another engineer quite easily. You can figure out if it's going to work or not mm-hmm. fairly quickly. I think the strategic stuff is what terrifies me. So, so we've hired. You know, we gave the sales pitch to the top few people on, on the Code Arena leaderboard. Basically, judge the reactions, see see how it goes, and kind of hired from there. the The next few like manager, strategic kind of roles um, are the ones that. Uh, we're just taking a lot more care with, and we're lucky in that you know our advisor and investor Don uh, Don Dodge, who's an IT executive from the Microsoft heyday, the Google heydays. Like he's he, he's like a fountain of knowledge that we can tap into with this stuff, mm. um, and so experienced. He's one of those like wise men who have a quote and a story about everything that always has a moral, and it's exactly the moral that you needed in that time. So he's he's been so key for us with, with this hiring stuff. Um, and will undoubtedly be, be key into the future as well.
1: Yeah. So how do you kind of align them with your values? I think we just judge. I I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll say
0: straight up, like, this is the mission. This is what we want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, this is the game plan. Is this something you want to be a part of? Um, all good. If not, don't worry about it.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess some people like come on, like they just say yes, but then they're really there just for the money. Um, and don't really treat it going all out, basically, like if it was their own. Um, so, I guess, how do you even get people to feel like that?
0: Yeah, and don't get me wrong; some people might might join cipherin and not have not experienced a being em, employed like that. That's that's a legitimate thing that might happen, and that they might not have seen culture before. They might not have known dynamics in a company before. And you know, you, you've got to make the effort as the the co founders and the the people. Who, who are running the the show, keeping the wheels on the track. Um, you've got to regularly kind of, you know, just like have all hands like every three months or so and just say, Hey, here's what we did. Here's where we are. This is still the vision. This is how we're getting there. This is how you guys have impacted this. This is how you can impact some more. This is, this is what we want to do. And it's, it's motivating, you know, if you can see the fruits of your, your labor almost and see that you are contributing because, We need people to contribute like you said we need uh what was it the babysitter to (laughs) come in come in and look after our baby but yeah that's that's exactly it um we can't do it alone so we we do need people to come in and own stuff and and pick it up and make it their own baby as well i don't know if that's the right (laughs) analogy (laughs) steal your baby (laughs) multiple fathers Yeah, I'm, I'm mothers, and we
1: can have a family of, uh, I don't know, like 500 parents if you want. There you go. That, that's he, he bring the ultimate baby into life. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, I'm interested to see how this baby grows up at, at Cypher. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think if anybody wants to go apply for Cypher, um, definitely reach out to Alex. Or Patrick, I wonder if Han, Hans is a. Yep, Hans is open as well. Yeah. So um, uh-huh. we have a
0: GitHub repo called Open Positions. So if you if you go there and uh, we I think it's hiring at Cymru.io, please reach out. You know we um, we're very open. We need all the help we can get if we're going to level level up Web three and mm-hmm. Web three security. And um, we're just interested to chat. Like you know, we want to learn.
1: We're, still, um, and we're still out here to learn stuff. Yeah, so go over there if you're interested in joining this team of basically pioneers in the space, especially in the education system. Um, they're kind of teaching everyone to get on board with Foundry and the latest tools and have been a major contributor to the onboarding of thousands of developers. So yeah, if you, if you think you might be a fit, definitely go over. Otherwise, if you... Want to hear someone else on on the podcast similar to Alex, please email scrapingbits at gmail.com or DM Degarchi on Twitter and suggest someone's out and I'll reach out. Otherwise, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Alex. I hope you enjoyed this and I hope the audience does as well.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thoroughly enjoyed. Wonderful.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's it. Everybody have a good day and I'll see you on the next one.